Let me open us in prayer. Almighty God, we do come to you recognizing that you are the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the one who loves us, but who is God in and of yourself. We come this morning to recognize that you really are that uncontrollable God who can be both terrifying, necessary, and redemptive, and an amazing blessing. Uh, Lord, we do ask that as we come as your people this morning, both together as a body, but also as we come together to meet with you, that you would accomplish your purposes in us. You are the one who is indeed the center of the universe. Um, and we pray, Lord, that we would recognize who you are, that we would recognize, as John tells us, we love because you first loved us. But I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would love you as you reveal yourself, um, that we would recognize that we meet with one who is breathtaking. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're continuing the study of Acts. I'm going to read the passage, and then um, there are several points that I'd like to draw from this passage. If you have your scriptures, we're going to be reading Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that, as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all healed. I'm sorry, but that's just so cute that I have to take a moment. It has nothing to do with the fact that it's my grandson. Um, I want to draw our attention back to the reality that what we're dealing with in the book of Acts is the revolution of the installation of the kingdom of God. Jesus has paid the debt. He's completed that ministry of active obedience. He has, he has done the work of passive obedience and suffered the wrath of God for our sin. He has brought the kingdom to bear. The kingdom is present, and, and that revolution that we take for granted, that at the cross, the kingdom was made manifest. And now God is at work, and, and as we begin this passage, it is God who is actively at work, and we take it kind of for granted. In fact, um, one of the quotes that's on the front of the bulletin, the second one down, if you were in this Sunday school class, you heard this focused upon, but it's, and so people ask God for signs and wonders. Yet when signs are given and wonders performed, most can't even see them. I therefore believe that it's not signs people should be asking God for, but you should be asking God for sight. We tend to take it 
for granted that God at that point in time did miracles, miracles and signs, wonders, regularly. Um, but the point that Luke is making at this is that God was active. The kingdom was visibly present, so much so that the people were, as we see in the end of this section, bringing the sick, bringing the demon-possessed, bringing those who needed the hand of God to the apostles. Um, God cares. God cares for the brokenness of his people. He cares for the brokenness of his creation. And God, in his caring, acts. In Paul Miller's book, uh, Love Walked Among Us, he focuses on the fact that Jesus sees. And when Jesus sees, he has compassion. And in his compassion, he acts. Jesus did that throughout his earthly ministry, but God continues to do that even now as the kingdom is established and Jesus is raised. God is demonstrating his presence and as a result, the believers gather together, and it's interesting that Luke tells us that they gather together in the temple in that area called Solomon's portico. Why is that important? One, it's a very large place. And at this point, we know that there are thousands who believe, and the people who believe are gathering together. But two, it's in the court of the Gentiles. Remember that the temple is structured in such a way that there is the, the walls of the temple, there is the, the outer courts that are called the courts of the Gentiles, where in many cases the moneylenders and the animal sellers would focus so that you could have temple currency to offer to the priests and have animals that had been certified as clean to be able to offer as sacrifices. But it was in that place where the Gentiles could gather. Inside that, you have the court of the women. This is for the Jews. Inside that, you have the court of the men, where they're now able to watch the sacrifices, and they're inside that place that is fairly restricted. And then you have the court of the priests, those who actually do the temple worship. Why is that important? Because everybody could join. This was the church together, old and young, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. And it was a place for everybody to be together and to worship in the presence of God. But what's really fascinating here is that, that phrase, none of the rest dared join them. The non-believers are kept at a distance by fear. And I want to focus on this for the bulk of the message because there's something really important for us to understand in this. It's easy for us to take God for granted. It's easy for us to have an understanding of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate in human form, Incarnate as God and man together in one person, Emmanuel, God with us, and take for granted that we have the presence of God. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, we're told that, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Which is true for the believer. 
Every believer has the presence of the Spirit. But God is not an add-on. In the Old Testament and in the period preceding the exile, we know that the Jews wanted to cover all their bases. And so they would understand that God had set them apart as a people and that Jerusalem was his city and the temple was a place that he was to be worshipped. But they would add Baal. Because it really doesn't hurt to cover all your bases. And Baal being the god of thunderstorms and the god of fertility, if we live in a desert and we want rain, can't hurt to add in extra. But we tend then to think of God both Baal and Yahweh, is an add-on. I'm going to cover my bases. In, in our culture today, there's this huge sense of what we would call in an evangelical vernacular fire insurance. God can be an add-on so that I know that I'm going to heaven. May as well cover my bases. You know, pray the sinner's prayer. But God is not an add-on. And as you see the way God interacts with his people, when God is present in his holiness and power, there's no question whether or not he's an add-on. Think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah is a prophet in a vision taken into the very throne room of God, recognizing because of the angelic beings, and because he sees God on his throne, that he's in trouble. And his response is, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. Again, on the front of the bulletin. The, deep, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation. You shall be as gods. Isaiah had no question. I'm a sinner. In the presence of the holy God, my eyes have seen the Lord. I'm toast. I'm going to die. And were it not for the work of God to take the coal from the altar and to cleanse Isaiah, he should have died. We recognize that when the high priest would go into the holy of holies and stand before the mercy seat of God, that he ran the risk of being in the presence of the almighty, all-holy, all-powerful God on that day of atonement. And there, there's a, a, a legendary teaching about the high priest having a rope tied around him so that should he stop moving, those who attended him outside that holy of holy could pull him out. Because entering the presence of the almighty, all-powerful, all-holy God is a risk. He's not an add-on. 
Joshua 5.15. Joshua is on the hill above Jericho. He's beginning to think about what we're going to do to take this fortified city. And he meets the commander of the Lord's hosts. And he shakes. And he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And, and the commander of the Lord's host makes a very plain statement. He says, I'm the commander of the Lord's hosts. What do you mean am I for you? You happen to be with me. God is going to bless you. Part of what frightens the rest who dare not join the church in Solomon's portico is what just happened with Ananias and Sapphira. The truth of the matter is, God doesn't accept bad behavior. God is that holy judge. God doesn't accept bad behavior even if our motives are understandable. Or in our own mind, our motives are good. E.C. mentioned last week Uzzah, that, that man of valor who served with David, who was walking beside the Ark of the Covenant, being carried wrongfully in a cart, who when the cart hit uneven surfaces and he thought the Ark would fall, put his hand out to stabilize it, and died. Because God is not an add-on. God is not to be trifled with. Moses. There's so many different times when Moses met with God that we could look at to say, okay, Moses understood God is not to be trifled with. God is not an addition. He met with Moses. God met with Moses at the bush. Moses, in meeting with God, said, can I see you? And God said, not my face. You see my face, you die. And put him in the cleft of the rock until he passed by and let Moses see his back. The people recognized what was going on as Moses went up Sinai and met with God face to face in those moments in, in that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud that is a representation of the Shekinah presence of God. And the people said, you go to the mountain, we're going to stay far away. Do we know who it is we are in community with? Do you understand what a gift it is that God calls you his own? I have to confess that frequently my desire when I am relating with God is to control. If I reflect on my prayer life, I'm asked by God to bring my needs to Him. Oh my goodness. But in recognizing that gift, that privilege, instead of recognizing the presence of the creator of the universe with whom I am free to meet, I bring a shopping list. And over time, and because of familiarity, I begin to relate to God 
as my servant. I may even, because of my attempt at righteousness and my desire to grow and my ability to do some things that seem good, begin to actually have the audacious attitude of, God, you owe me. Brothers and sisters, do you know to whom you speak? The God who dealt with Ananias and Sapphira. The God who is holy, righteous, and pure. The God who redeems. E.C. did a great job last week talking in his sermon about the fact that it is the cross that gives us freedom to dwell in the presence of God. Passage upon passage talks about how God is not controllable. He does not yield to us, but he redeems us and makes us fit with him. You're redeemed. Jesus came. This event is happening in the context of both the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. It's absolutely breathtaking that God came and demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But that does not make us boss. That does not give us the privilege to believe that we are God's equal, much less his superior. But God himself complicates this. Because in Ephesians 5, we have that wondrous picture of marriage. Jesus is our groom. And Paul, in the midst of that passage, says something astounding. That the God of the universe, the God of all holiness, the God of all power, has chosen us redeems us, sanctifies us, marries us. And Paul says in that passage that the the two shall become one flesh, and this mystery is great, but I'm not talking about husband and wife. I'm talking about Christ and his bride. There is an intimacy that God gives to us of one flesh. But please, please, don't ever lose sight. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that your groom is the creator of the universe. I think the thought I want you to focus on is that God is not somebody you pick up when you need him and set aside when you don't. You have an incredible blessing to belong as bride to Christ. And the verse that I think I want you to take is John 14, 15. 
If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Our life is not an issue of trying to earn. Our life is not an issue of trying to use. It is that wondrous, that wondrous reality that the God of the universe, the God who has created everything that is out of nothing, has redeemed you, has loved you, and continues to love you. The God who struck Uzzah, the God who took Ananias and Sapphira, the God who required Moses not to enter the promised land because of his trivializing his obedience, is the God who redeems you and gives you eternity and meets with you morning by morning and evening by evening and indwells you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand the incredible magnitude of the gift. And I want you not to be afraid. There is no reason for the believer to fear. But I want you to be in awe of the God who loves you. And the result? The believers recognize they need God. There's, there's, there's death, there's dying, there's oppression, there's unclean spirits. And it, the reality for the non-believer is I can't live without God. I can't live without God. I'm not in control. I don't have the power. He does, but he's not mine to control. So I either live as a, a member of his family, bride, safe, loved and cared for, or I live alone, powerless. And the reality was the people brought the sick. They brought those possessed by unclean spirits. They brought people to be healed. And the outcome? They were all healed. Being healed... They worshipped. They gathered together. They, they, they stayed in the temple, in the court of the Gentiles, in Solomon's portico, hearing the word of the apostles and worshipping. So what I want you to think about today, do I see Jesus? Do I recognize his love for me? Do I recognize who he is that loves me? Do I recognize he meets my needs? And how do I then live in the context of the body in which he has placed me? Experiencing the fellowship that I need, because brothers and sisters, we need this. We need to be reminded. We need to be experiencing the presence of God together. We need to be reminded of who he is. We need to be reminded of his love for us and his call upon us. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let's pray. Almighty God, you who are holy, you who are other, 
are also you who have given yourself to us. You have called us. You indwell us, individually and corporately. I pray that we would see you in the way that you see us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we see you, we would delight. Lord Jesus, you are the one who owns us. We don't own you. Other than by the gift that you give to us of mutual possession. You are the groom and we are the bride. And by your free gift, we belong. And so we pray that today you would energize us, that you would give us sight, that we would see your signs, that we would see the wonders, that we would recognize your presence, that we would see your fingerprints, and that we would, out of our love for you, serve you for kingdom. Lord, you are here to build a kingdom. You are here to build rebuild this world as a place of worship. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be active kingdom builders because we know you and we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.